welcome. You're listening to Big Crone Energy. I'm your host, Karina Blackheart, the crone herself. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening in to the Big Crone Energy podcast. This is Karina Blackheart, the crone herself. And today I'm here solo. I'm going to talk to you about my trip to Malta and Greece. I've had a lot of uh, questions and would just love to share uh, my travelogue. Before I get into um, being in Malta, in Greece, at the many, 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 many temples that I visited and the oracles that I spoke with, I just want to talk a little bit about travel and specifically about traveling alone, the expense of traveling, and the benefits of traveling. So I had never been out of the country besides a short trip to Quebec when I was a child and a trip to Mexico when I was 24 for my honeymoon with my first husband. Around 2008, I was invited to the UK and Germany to teach some intensive weekend-long retreats there. So I had about two weeks when I was overseas, and I was very well taken care of by my my hosts and uh, the folks who hired me to come over and teach. While we were in the UK, uh, we went to Glastonbury to the Glastonbury tour. We went to the town. We did some shopping. We went to Callis Well. We did circle in a stone circle um, on a sheep farm. I don't know the name of the stone circle, but it was really beautiful. Um, we had to walk through the sheep farm, knock on the farmer's door, and ask permission to be on his property. We stopped at Stonehenge, um, then traveled over to Germany to Heidelberg for a workshop there. And uh, after the workshop, I, I got on a plane and came home. I remember sitting in uh, an outdoor restaurant with about 15 people at the table from all over Europe who had come to my lecture intensive and you know people were speaking different languages the menu was in a different language it was an Italian restaurant in Heidelberg Germany it was a beautiful evening and I remember just being almost out of body Um, I was so elated and I thought this is this is the high point of my life right and so for several months I continued to talk about that trip as the high point of my life. And at that point, let's see, it was, like I said, around 2008, maybe maybe a little bit later. Um, so that means that I was like 40, early 40s. And I realized that magically, intentionally, I couldn't say that that was the high point of my life, right? That there would be other high points yet to be known, yet to even be imagined. Uh, But I had to leave the door open for those high points. Anyways, I went back to England for one more intensive and um, then did like a year and a half long intensive in Germany where I was going over um, about every three or four months um, for a workshop called Inside the Rose. It was an initiatory path to uh, self-love, to the great uh, heros demos, uh, uh, our marriage to our higher self. At that point, a lot of people were saying, wow, you know, you travel a lot, you travel a lot. And I thought, you know, I'm going to Germany, I'm getting off the plane, my dear friend is picking me up, bringing me to her house, I'm teaching for three days. I get on a plane, I come home. <laughs> we went to the same restaurants every time. Um, but in the meantime, I was arranging some travel for myself and a group of students that I was teaching 
that travel included intensives, but we were both teaching and sort of temple sacred site touring. And that brought me to Edinburgh uh, for the, the Beltane Fire Festival, which was spectacular. It brought me to the island of Hawaii for an amazing week of visiting sacred sites and volcanoes and mountaintops and peridot beaches and black beaches and just a uh, spectacular time. While I was in Hawaii was when I finished my uh, firewalk instructor training as well. So, you know, I've traveled a bit, but always in groups and always related to my work. And uh, I really, around 2015, 2016, began to try to figure out how I could travel to Italy, where I had always wanted to go. And I wanted to see also uh, the Mediterranean coast, excuse me, southern France. So I saved my pennies, and I looked at all of the maps and hotels and airfares and museum tickets and all of that. Um, I was able to do like a three-week trip to Italy. I started in Venice. I took a train to Florence. From there, I took a train to Naples and and uh, south, just south of Naples. I stayed in a little town that was near Pompeii and then to Sorrento for a few days. From Sorrento, I took a ferry to Positano, then a ferry to uh, Amalfi, and then another ferry to Salerno, uh, which is a big city in uh, sort of mid-southern Italy on the coast, and uh, I was really there because I wanted to get to Paestum, which was an ancient Greek, then Roman temple city site. So I took a train there. In all of these places, I visited museums, I visited the sea, I walked around um, and tried to absorb the energy of the people, the culture, ate the food. What I want to say, you know, people often ask me, you know, oh my gosh, you travel alone, right? Um, My reality is, is I'm a single woman. I have friends all over the world. (laughs) I don't have a lot of folks that I'm super tight with that are nearby. I don't have a partner. And I thought, if I keep waiting for someone to come with me, I'm never going to go. And I didn't want to be organizing travel for other people anymore. I just wanted to go. I wanted to I wanted to be at my own pace, right? Moving at the pace that was right for me. I like to travel slow. Right? I like to arrive in a place. I like to unpack, walk around, have a day of um, really just feeling into the energy of a place, watching people, maybe doing a little shopping, sitting in cafes outside, watching folks, um, seeing the land, the ocean, if I'm near the ocean. And then I'll do a couple days of uh, visiting museums or temple sites or whatever it is that I'm there to see. Then a day to pack and travel to the next place. So it's sort of slow. I don't like to run. I don't like to go fast. I don't believe I'm ever going to see everything in a city that I'm traveling to uh, in the matter of days. Uh, And if I do try to do that, I'm so exhausted that I'm not even enjoying myself. So I want to talk about the importance of travel and some reasons why we don't travel, right? You might not have a passport. Um, Get one. (laughs) You know, it costs about $150 total to get a passport so that you can leave the country and go where you want to go. You have to get all of your paperwork together. It's kind of a bureaucratic red tape thing. But if you can follow directions and fill out forms and get a passport, let it be the first thing that you manifest as you think about beginning to travel. 
The second thing I already said is don't wait. Don't wait for someone else to want to go with you. And if expense is your concern, you know, it is expensive to travel, but it doesn't have to be outrageously expensive. If you're going to hire a travel agency to plan your travel for you, it's going to be really expensive. You're going to stay in really nice places. You're going to go to really nice restaurants. You won't have to wait in line to get into museums and things like that. But you're really on someone else's itinerary, and you're paying not only for your travel, not only for your sightseeing and hotels and meals, but you're also paying a really big fee to a travel agent. So do your research, right? I don't pay travel agents. I pay with my own time, my own effort, my own energy, and it takes me months to figure out where I want to be, where I'm going to stay, how I'm going to get from place to place, um, what museums, where's the best way to get a ticket to museums, what's the best way to travel around in a city or a country. In Europe, you know, trains are so different than they are here. They run everywhere, they run all the time, and they're really inexpensive. If I want to take a bus or a train, either one, from where, from the nearest town where I can get one from me to Boston, which is a two-hour drive away, it's going to take me two or three hours at least on that bus or train, and it's going to cost me $70 one way. I traveled from Venice to Florence, which was about a three-hour, maybe two hours on a fast train, and it cost me $36. So train travel is really inexpensive. There's always an Uber available no matter where you go. And when I was traveling along the Amalfi Coast, I could have taken a train, but it would had to go way inland because of the mountainous nature of the landscape. It would have taken longer, and I really wanted to see the Amalfi coastline from the water. So I took ferries. Um, so I was in boats all along the Amalfi Coast looking at this beautiful landscape and these amazing cities built into the mountainscapes along the sea line. And each of those ferries cost about 10 to $15. Right? The trip from Amalfi to Salerno was about $7. I want to just say that it's possible, right? Certainly it's not possible if you're struggling to pay your rent, right? Um, the way that I save money to travel is uh, through my writing, you know, my book sales. Um, all of those funds go in a particular account. Uh, if someone pays me cash for anything, that money goes into that account. And I just let it build up until I have enough to travel. That three-week long trip in Italy, cost me about $3,000 total, including plane fare, including meals, including hotels, including museums, including uh, being a tourist who likes to shop. I was surprised this time. Um, I probably shouldn't have been surprised because inflation is a thing that has happened everywhere since the pandemic. Uh, so this trip was a, a bit more expensive um, for everything. Plane fare was much more expensive. Um, uh, I wasn't able to find um, Airbnbs or uh, places like that that were inexpensive and I felt safe about staying in. Um, so I mostly stayed in uh, hotels. Um, but still... You know, an ocean view over the Aegean Sea on Santorini was about $87 a night. Um, I can't stay anywhere in Massachusetts for $87 a night, right? So when I think about going to the shoreline here in New England, it's going to be at least $200 a night. 
just for a hotel. And food is going to be outrageous. And traffic is going to be outrageous. You know, if I take the airfare out of the picture, it's cheaper for me to travel to Europe. So, and we get exposed to other cultures, other languages, other kinds of food, um, art, and archaeology, <laughs> and culture, right? Music, dance, uh, folk music, folk customs. It's, um, it changes your life. It changes your worldview. It expands your way of thinking, being, and living uh, in the world as a world citizen, but also it changes our view and our perspective on what it means to be a United States citizen, and it calls into question our sense of American exceptionalism, that we're the best country in the world. Every place in the world is amazing, contrary to what used to be popular belief. Uh, we are not more free. We are not more privileged. In fact, I had several Europeans say to me on my most recent trip that the United States is con now considered a third world country by Europeans. We don't have free higher education. We don't have access to health care. We don't have access to reliable, inexpensive transportation. We don't have a real retirement plan. We don't have a real safety net where if people need governmental help, they actually receive enough to live reasonably. So we're considered a third world country and uh, a failing or failed democracy. You know, it's helpful to hear this from people who don't live here and what their outside opinions are. Um, when I was there in Germany 10, 15 years ago, people still thought of the United States as um, sort of the seat of democracy. They had a lot of questions for me about what my government was doing and a lot of complaints about it but they did not consider us a failed or failing democracy. So many reasons to travel, right? And you don't have to do it sitting in the seat of luxury. You can do it inexpensively. You can watch your budget. So I want to talk to you next about Malta. And why did I go to Malta? Why, out of all the places that I could choose in the world, did I wind up on this little tiny island of a country, uh, midpoint between Sicily and Tunisia. The whole country is smaller than the state of Rhode Island by about half. So you could drive in a car tip to tip in about 45 minutes, and you could drive across the whole country in about 35 minutes. So this, I have to give you some history on how I wind, wound up in Malta. When I was uh, in college in the early 1990s, it, I was in a women's studies program at Mount Holyoke College. I was doing a lot of art history um, studies, feminist studies, historical studies, goddess studies, religious studies, um, my major was self-designed. It was called Women, Spirituality, and Power, which today would translate fairly easily into gender politics and religious studies. Here I am, all of these years later, still using that degree, still falling back upon the education that I received there and following up always on the education that I received there. Anyways, I was part of a women's circle uh, we called ourselves the Circle of the Goddess, probably like 10,000 other uh, women's circles at that time and today. And uh, one of the women in the circle was traveling to Malta to see the ancient goddess temples there. She came home from there 
and packed up her stuff <laughs> and moved directly to Malta. She wanted to live near those temples. She wanted to be in the energy and environs of a place where the goddess was worshipped so openly and consistently for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, my friend looked like the goddesses of Malta. She was luxuriously rotund and uh, fecund and gorgeous and powerful. And um, before she left, it was simultaneous with my doing my thesis for my degree at Mount Holyoke. And uh, I was interviewing women from the goddess movement um, about their experiences and why the goddess and how it was helping them to evolve spiritually, to address internalized patriarchal oppression, uh, questions like that. And uh, Willow was definitely on my list of people to interview. She called me about three weeks before the interview and said, you know, I'm moving to Malta a week after our interview and I just can't fit it into my schedule and I'm so sorry. And I said, I'm going to give you something before you leave. And I sat down and I recorded on a cassette tape, this is how long ago it was, myself singing chants and praise songs uh, to the goddess. And uh, she loved my singing voice, and we always sang together in our circles and rituals. So I wanted to give her something to remember me by, thinking that I would never see her again. And actually, I, I never have seen her again. But we did speak um, on the phone or, or emailed or something. And she told me that she had been bringing the cassette player with my voice recording to the goddess temples in Malta, and that my voice, my love for the goddess, my songs had been being sung by me in those temples for a decade. And it was at that time that I thought, I have to go there. I have to get to Malta. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I have to get to Malta because part of me is there. Part of me has been singing in those temples for a decade. And I need to go meet that part of me there. And I need to go meet the energies, the goddesses, the spirits that have been receiving my song. So in 2019, I decided that it was the time <laughs> that I needed to get to Malta. And um, my travel fund was a little low and I thought I will go in the winter I'll go in February and uh, January to February and that will get me out of New England <laughs> in the worst weather of the year and um, it's not tourist season at all in Europe at that point and so it'd be cheaper to travel cheaper to stay there all of that so I started planning this and I had everything planned for this trip I had the hotels picked out, I had the airline tickets picked out, I had where I wanted to go picked out. This is just how I plan. Everything was sort of waiting in folders with links on my computer, and I just had to purchase everything and go. But I kept hesitating about purchasing these tickets. And my sense was, now is not the time, right? Like, I kept getting this message, like, not now. Now is not the time to go to Malta. And the message was so consistent. And I listened to my intuition. I, I listened to messages like that. And I decided not to go. Instead, I went to St. Augustine, Florida. I met a friend there for a few days. Um, I stayed there for a few days alone. I met another friend who lives in Florida and um, spent some time with them and then headed home. But while I was there, news of the pandemic hit. 
of this coronavirus and how dangerous it was and how quickly it was going to spread. Also, news of Malta came in. Malta had closed its borders immediately. Nobody in, nobody out. I would have been there. And while Malta is beautiful, being stuck and unable to come home for an unannounced amount of time would have been devastating to my finances, to my family, to my life here in the States. So I'm really grateful that I know my internal voices and the voices um, that carry information and warning and blessing to me and that I know when to listen to those voices. So that was 2020. This year I decided now is the time. Travel is freed up again. The World Health Organization has said that we are not in an emergency part of the pandemic, that the pandemic is still here. Um, we still need to be careful. We still need to take precautions. We still need to wear masks and um, when traveling and, um, and be vaccinated, but that it is safe to do these things. And so this was the time to go to Malta. That's a long introduction to this travel, but I, it's all part of the story, and I'm a bit of a storyteller, so bear with me. The temples in Malta range from, uh, they, they, they expect that they were built anywhere between like 6,500 before the Christian era through about 2,500 BCE. After that time, no more temples were built. There's no more statuary found, and nobody knows why. <laughs> they don't know where the people came, the temple builders came from, and they don't know why they stopped building. It doesn't appear that there was an invasion. It doesn't appear that there was mass death. And it could just be that the temples were built. <laughs> that they were finished building temples where they wanted them to be. It could also be that humans began evolving to build something new, and yet there's no newer ancient temples there either. So it's a bit of a mystery. There are a dozen temple complexes on this tiny nation-state island. Usually, there are two temples built close together. And by close, I mean, you know, half a mile to a mile. In one place, they were literally, uh, the temples were in a city, a small city, and they were 10-minute walk, several city blocks away from each other. And I found that to be the case in most places. Uh, there's only one place Borg in Nador, which is in the in the southern part of the coastline. There, there was a temple structure, and then there were caves that looked like sometimes they were used as temples, sometimes they were used as um, cemeteries, right, catacombs. But the rest of the temples, if if you were near, if you were at one, you were nearby enough to walk to another temple. We don't know why. These temples, the oldest ones look like circles, not complete circles, like the whole structure of the temple would have been a circle. But inside that outer ring, the shape, if you look at it from above, looks like the shape of a woman's body. The outline of breasts, and then the outline of hips, and then the outline of legs. So this is how all of the structures are built. Some are in much better repair. The excavations were more careful, and the rebuilds were meticulous. Some are still in uh, very poor shape. Uh, you might just 
walk right by them and think that's just a big old pile of stones there until you look more carefully and you see that there are dolmens and doorways and archways within the pile of stones. The first temples that I visited were the temple complex of Hagar, Kim, and Menajra. And this is where the fat goddess statues were found. Um, these temples had been excavated in the 1920s to 1940s. The World Heritage Foundation came in with a lot of money and a desire to see these structures uh, put back together. And so the archaeologists were working there for decades trying to identify what would have gone with what and where. The structures are open to the air, but they're covered with gigantic sort of sunshade tarps to keep the rain, some of the wind and weather off of the tops of the stones and off of the ground where the stones have been re-erected. What was fascinating to me, uh, I mean, the, the structures themselves are just so beautiful, so meticulously built, and they were sites for not only worship, but for viewing the heavenly bodies. So on summer solstice and winter solstice, just like we see in the UK at the most famous stone circles and structures, the sun comes through an archway at Hagar Kim, and at the nearby temple, Menajra, the sun actually enters a round window, pours light across the temple floor. But these temples also had windows and archways for viewing the lunar cycles. So the full moon at certain times of the year would pour through these windows. And even more fascinating, they were also watching the Pleiades. So there would be seven holes built into the sides of the temples where those stars, the light from those stars would pierce through the temple walls and onto the floor. Remember, these people were doing this 8,000 years ago. 8,000 years. Think about that. That they had the capacity to track the stars, the moon, and the sun. That they had the capacity to build these really intricate temple spaces. Some of these temples are as big as a football field. These are not small temples, and they are much more complete than the stone circles, even Stonehenge, that we see in the UK or in Brittany or across all of Europe. Um, the idea that stone circles are only in England, um, only in the British Isles, is, is a tremendous error. <laughs> um, stone circles are found in ancient temples are all across Europe. Uh, people did not just stay in one place. And if we believe the, the hundredth monkey theory, uh, which I'm not going to explain to you because I'll, I'll get off on a, a whole other tangent, but if we believe in the, the hundredth monkey theory that, you know, groups of people in different parts of the world were evolving to be able to complete certain tasks at the same time, right? It wasn't like people traveled and brought this to another place. These things are happening simultaneously. It seems that all across Europe, that these dolmens, menhirs, stone circles, stone temples, viewing spaces for the solar and lunar movements were happening, if not simultaneously, within the span of about 2,000 years. After that, we start to look, we turn our eyes toward Greece, right, um, and say what was happening there. Um, and, uh, and different kinds of temples uh, were being built there starting in about 4,000 BC. 
but we'll get to that. So I was able to visit the temple sites of Hagar Kim and Menajra, Menajra, it's hard for me to pronounce these words. The Maltese language is a combination of Italian and Arabic. <laughs> so it absolutely makes no sense to me. After being there for several days, I was able to start asking questions like, how is that letter pronounced? How do I say that word? And I at least was able to pronounce some things um, based upon how they were meant to be heard, but I still couldn't read them off of a piece of paper or a sign. Another temple site on the southern coastline of Malta was Skorba and Tahagrat. These temples, uh, Skorba especially, was in pretty poor condition. It really looked like, again, another big pile of rocks. And I mean, when I say big, I mean like as tall as maybe one and a half stories of a house that we would live in now. And that they were moving these big stones into place. And then at this point, the one in Skorba anyway, which is older than Tahagra, they were piling other big stones sort of in between the dolmens uh, to create walls. But still, you start you see archways um, where uh, that were doorways, right? Still, you see holes in those archways where they would have attached a gate or a door um, and then latched it uh, into these holes in the dolmens. I did not get to Borg in Nador or those caves that I mentioned earlier, but I did take a ferry boat to Goza from the main island of Malta and visited the Gigantia Temple and Museum, and I was not able to visit the other temple there because that was closed. Um, some of the sites you just can't get into because they're trying so hard to preserve what is there and um, maybe the World Heritage Foundation or the Malta Heritage Foundation are stalled in restructuring and preserving these spaces. So some of them you just can't go in because they're too fragile, and they're in the midst of trying to figure out how to rebuild and preserve and make it available for the public to visit. So Gigantia is uh, the oldest of the temples um, on the islands. Again, some of this looked like piles of stones with some dolmens, right? Um, but there's these were taller, maybe about two and a half stories of what we would consider a modern building. So <laughs> a lot of work went into these, getting all of those stones up there. And you would see uh, across the top of these tall, tall, tall dolmens, these broad stones that capped the dolmens. Again, this is built in a circular structure on the, the outer sides of it would be circular and the inside had the shape of the female body with little rooms built in and smaller spaces where they expect that temple items were stored, altar spaces, fireplace where burnt offerings would be made. And this is where you see many of the large rotund goddesses were found in this temple as well. And there's some really interesting stories. Um, it, the, the place is called Gigantia, and it's spelt like giant, right? The word giant is kind of uh, built into that word. And there were stories that giants built these temples. An interesting aside, in the book of Genesis, in the Bible, there is a story about the flood, you know, Noah's Ark and the flood. And the reason that that God flooded the earth was to rid it of giants. These giants, according to Genesis, were the offspring of the union between humans and angels. So just 
putting that out there because that's how my mind works. It makes connections between these ancient stories about giants and floods and gods and other beings. I don't want to suggest that <laughs> the mythology of giants building these temp that particular temple site on Malta has anything to do with the giants mentioned with the floods. Um, may have something to do with the giants mentioned in the story of Genesis, but the floods would have taken place long before the building of these temples. And it, the story of the giants tells us that um, whoever came upon these temples later, probably thousands of years later, did not have the story of the people who built them, right? So they made a story of the people who built them. It's also interesting to me that we have a story uh, for children about Jack and the beanstalk and that Jack climbs up the beanstalk and is confronted by this giant. And the story of the giant woman who built the temple at Gigantia, she is also recognized as a goddess of beans. So... Again, this is how my crazy mind works. I just make connections, and hopefully they're entertaining. I did get to the temple in the sort of north west north west um, shoreline. It's it's the way that the island sits is not on the cardinal point, so it's always it kind of confuses me. But there's a temple site there called Tasilg. And um, it wasn't even on my radar until I talked with a friend of mine who told me that um, her name is Alexis. You may know her. And she told me that she had been donating to the preservation of this particular temple and was hoping that I would be visiting there. And because she recommended it and the story she told me, um, I absolutely put it on my list of places I had to get. So... Tasilg actually means mother of snows, and so the area is called Tasilg, and the church there is called Tasilg. So it was they were speaking about Mary, right, mother of snows. I don't know why snow in Malta. These temples are ancient, ancient as well. This is a huge temple complex, and you can't get in. <laughs> Um, I did not know that in order to access the Tassil temple that you had to make arrangements in advance and you could only be going with a group. So it's not something that I alone could have bought a ticket to anyway. Um, but I did uh, take an Uber down there um, not knowing that I couldn't get in. Anyways, let me let me back up to the story. So these are ancient ancient, really big temple sites, like bigger than any of the other ones that I've seen. But these temple sites, um, after the Phoenicians had come to Malta, became reestablished as temples to the goddess Ishtar, the star goddess. It was a temple that was visited by seafarers. It's near a port in a town called Marksalux. So it was a very important temple site next to a very important seaport. You would have had to move in ships past this port to get to the east coast of Italy and up the Mediterranean to Europe from there. So it was in use as a temple to the ancient goddess Ishtar for thousands of years and then became uh, a place of worship for Mary. They built a church next door to the temple. The old temple fell out of use. The church, though, is still there. So when I arrived in Talsig and was uh, so disappointed to see that I couldn't get access to this important site, I asked the Uber driver, please, there's a there's a church nearby. 
let's find the church and, and I'll go there. Because what I feel is this is a, just a continuation, right? It was the ancient unnamed goddesses of Malta, and then it was Ishtar, and then it was Mary. And um, they placed that church there for a reason. And to me, Mary is still the goddess, right? She's attached to the story of um, Jesus Christ and the Christian religion, obviously, but for so many. And that early on when that temple was built, it was an extension of goddess worship. And for many today, Mariolatry is still a worship of the goddess, the ancient goddess. So the Uber driver and I found the church. It was also quite old. Um, it looked maybe abandoned. Um, <laughs> so I asked the Uber driver, can you wait for me in case I can't get into the church or in case I can't get onto the grounds? And he said, yes, I'll wait. And so he just waited quietly, and I went. Um, I could not get into the church itself. It was locked. But I could get uh, behind the church onto grounds that were Again, maybe a half a mile away from the temple site. And so I made offerings there to the ancient unnamed goddesses, to Ishtar, and of course to Mary, who's the other temple near Tasilg is called Zgrab Ligan. And I did not know about that temple, so I did not try to go there. I've seen photographs of it. Um, it is right along the ocean side, and again, very close to the temple at Tasig. So I'm cognizant of time, and that we're at about 45 minutes here. And I have not even told you yet about the temple at Tarshen and the Hypogeum. So that will have to wait until the next podcast. The story of the Hypogeum is really, really worth listening to because it tells us something new about these ancient temples. And that is the temple where the oracle was that I went to see because I, too, have oracular talent. So I went there to learn from that ancient oracle space. So please listen in next time. It will be less about history, less about archaeology, and more about um, the sacred experience that I had at the Hypogeum. While I have you here, I want to remind you, because I haven't said anything about Big Crone Energy, the crone herself, the crone's marketplace, and I want to make sure that you are aware of what's happening there. It's one of the reasons why I record these podcasts, right, is to um, help you get used to hearing my voice and how I talk and how I teach. One of the things that's coming up uh, beginning in July are monthly dark moon rituals of release. So we'll be doing magic together to release what's in the way of you feeling fantastic about yourself and your life and your magic and your relationships and the work that you do in the world. Releasing what's in the way is going to be a monthly dark moon ritual that will be posted on my website this coming week. If you are a member of the Conspiracy, which is the Crone Herself's membership group, then the Dark Moon ceremonies are part of your membership. You don't have to pay an extra fee. But if you are not a member of the conspiracy, you can still join us, but it will be for a fee. What else is coming up? Soon there will be uh, chats with the crone herself where you get to actually talk back to me rather than listening to me speak uh, to you on a podcast. And this fall begins... A Provocation of Crones. It's a five-part series. The first part is called Invoke. And in that series, we will be invoking, calling in, and calling upon the powers of the ancient goddesses, the ancient archetypal and ancestral crones, to help us, to guide us, to empower us and protect us 
on our path through these times of great change and toward our most authentic expression of who we really are, who we know we are, who we feel in our core we are meant to be. So we call upon the old ones to help us in this path. That's the first part of a provocation of Crohn's. If you want to learn about the other four parts, I'm going to direct you to my website, The Crone Herself. We just got in brand new batch of gorgeous candles poured exclusively for The Crone Herself by Spill the Tea Sis Apothecary. So they are big crone energy candles, and you should go check them out. Also, just this morning, I posted some statuary that I brought back from Malta and from Greece. And as of this recording, there are three pieces remaining on the site. Go get them before they're gone, okay? Don't assume that they're gone. Go check and see. Okay, thanks so much for listening in. I look forward to telling you all about the hypogeum. And then in another podcast, we'll talk about Greece because that is a whole other story. Okay, have a great night. Have a great day. Blessings. Take very good care of yourself.